If you have your Bibles, take them and turn in them to the book of Acts, Acts chapter um, 11. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, the last uh, section of that, um, chapter 19 to, to verse 27, as we work our way uh, through this passage. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the chairs in front of you, and uh, you're welcome to use that. And if you don't even own a Bible, you can take that one as a gift and, and uh, just have it for yourself. Um, you know, I'd like us to stand as we read God's Word this morning, and we will read verse 19 to verse 30, and uh, believe that God will now uh, speak to us uh, through His Word. Hear the Word of the Lord today. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Father, thank you for uh, your word now. As we come before it, we do pray that you would give us humble hearts, that you would give us soft hearts before it. Father, sometimes we can read an account like this and we think, wow, that's just a neat story of history. And Yet there are truths in here that teach us so much about you, so much about ourselves, so much about the way of the gospel. I pray, Father, that this would grab, grab our hearts, that what you, are recorded, what you have recorded here will be of benefit for us even this week and maybe even this day. Make your word live, I pray. Thank you that it is an eternal word. It will never pay, fade and never pass away. Thank you that what you say yesterday, you say today, and what you say today, you say tomorrow. There is no shadow of turning with you. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a fairly substantial uh, shift that takes place in verse 19 of chapter 11. And it takes place in uh, a unique city, Antioch. Antioch is a city that was founded by Ale one of Alexander the Great's generals in 300 B.C., and uh, it's in Syria, not in Turkey. There is an Antioch that's in Turkey, but this is the Antioch that is in Syria. It's about 15 miles upriver on the Orontes River, which flows into the Mediterranean Sea. It was known as a beautiful city with fine buildings and great boulevards. It had beautiful groves of trees, and it was well known for its baths. At this time, the city was uh, estimated to be around 500,000 people, which is a fairly large city. And the ancient historian Josephus writes of the city, and he says that it was, he ranks it as the third largest or the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. 
The first being Rome itself, the second being Alexandria in Egypt, and then the third being Antioch in Syria. So this was no small town. Three words that I've used to describe it or summarize the town, two of them are not my own. It seems like every other commentator has used these three words, but they describe what the city uh, in general terms. First of all, it was a cosmopolitan place. This was truly a city of the world, Antioch was. It was called Antioch the Great, Queen of the East. It had a large Jewish, Persian, Arabian, Greek, Indian, Roman, and Oriental uh, um, uh, sections in the city, as well as numerous people from other places in the world. It was what we would call a melting pot city. It was very much like Vancouver, I would say, as I was thinking about this. Very much like Vancouver. And so it was known as this city from which people from all over the world came to live. Secondly, it was also known as a commercial district. It was known as a business center. And it was called, um, or, or it, was a, it was a place that was sophisticated, it was tolerant, and it was at the junction of main trade routes, both south and north and east and west. And people came there and centered their businesses there so that they could take advantage of all the flow-through that took place through Antioch. So it was this great cosmopolitan place. It was this great commercial center. But it was also corrupt. She may have been a stunning city, one wrote, but her name was a byword for luxurious immorality. Outside of the city was a park or a grove of trees called the Grove of Apollo. And in fact, we have such places both in Victoria and in Vancouver. It was notorious as a location for licentious sexual indulgence. It was like an outdoor brothel, and people went there specifically to indulge their sensual appetites. This place, Antioch, was so well known for its moral corruption that one Roman senator tried to describe how Rome itself had become so morally corrupt. And he wrote, it's because the Orontes has poured pollution into the Tigris, or the Tiber, the, the Tiber. The Tiber is a river that runs through Rome, and the Orontes is a river that runs through uh, Antioch. And so he was attributing the moral corruption and pollution in Rome as coming from Antioch. Another person wrote, the citizens were vigorous, or a vigorous, turbulent, and pushing race. Notorious for their commercial aptitude, the licentiousness of their pleasures, and the scurrility of their wit. You wonder, would it be possible for the gospel to ever penetrate into such a place like this? This seems to be as one of, one of the most corrupt places on the face of the earth at that time. But it's fascinating to me that this very passage tells us that the gospel is able to penetrate even into a cosmopolitan, commercial, corrupt place like Antioch. You say, well, how does God build his church in a place like this? You may say, well, you know, this city is much like my family. It's much like my, my neighbors or it's much like my workplace. It is, it is corrupt. It is focused on money. Um, it, it is focused on sophistication. How will the gospel ever penetrate that environment? Well, we need to be reminded of what is written by uh, Mark, in his gospel, and Jesus said it, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If one had spiritual eyes, you could probably look at Antioch and see the gates of hell wrapped around that city 
and think, wow, this is a pretty difficult place. We're never going to make progress there. But as Christ said, the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against my church. There's two focuses in this passage. One I just briefly will mention to you. Um, It's the God focus, and the other is the human focus. But we see how it is that God penetrates into a place like Antioch. We see how it is that God penetrates into the life of one that is so hardened themselves. And first of all, we see it because there is a, uh, the, the work of God in his completeness is taking place. And by that I mean we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at work in a place. You might have heard as I read that uh, Barnabas came into Antioch and he saw the grace of God. God was at work. God the Father was at work pouring out grace and mercy into that community. Loved ones, there is nobody that is outside of the reach of God's grace and mercy. There is no city. There is no nation. There is no tribe. There is no workplace. There is no neighborhood. There is no individual that is beyond the grace of God. And so as they witness, they see the grace of God at work. Not only do they see the grace of God at work, but as I read, you may have noticed that five times the Lord is referenced in this passage. And we see in this particular passage that the hand of the Lord was honoring the gospel, that the people were turning to the Lord, that they were preaching the Lord, that they were becoming faithful to the Lord, and that there were great numbers added to the Lord. And so at the heart of this church was, the, was, was Christ the Son of God, and he was building his church. People were turning towards him. He was at work in the power of his name. So we see God the Father. We see God the Son. And then if you listen carefully, you would have seen two places where the Spirit was mentioned. First of all, we read how Barnabas, full of the Spirit, went into Antioch. And then Agabus, who spoke a word of prophecy, spoke by the Spirit of God. And so here we have sort of this irresistible force of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit of uh, uh, all at work coming to bear upon Antioch. Loved ones, never doubt that for a moment when you're praying for our community or when you're praying for your spouse or a family member. Never doubt for a moment that the power of God through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, never doubt that that power is going to break through into that situation. Added to that, we have the focus on the Word of God. And you see that as they came in, they preached the Word, they spoke the Word, they preached the Word of the Lord, they discipled in the Word. The foundation of the church, the foundation of salvation, beloved, is the Gospel, is the Word of God. We will not make inroads into people's lives if we do not take the Word of God. I've said it so many times. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the gospel that saves. It is not a program. It is not my charismatic nature. It is not my ability to argue somebody into the kingdom of God. It is the power of God at work through the word of God. So, loved ones, that is the divine side of things. We make a transition, though, by thinking of this. How does God get us to go to the ends of the earth? How does God get his people to go to Antioch? Well, he moves us out of our comfort zones. See, we like things to remain the same, don't we? We're people of habits. We like familiar places and familiar people. 
In Acts, we read that we are to go to the ends of the world with the gospel. That implies serious change, and many of us can't stand change. But he's saying you need to go to people of a different language, of a different culture. They eat different foods. They sing different songs. They have different music. You need to go there. And we say, well, I'm not going there. That's out of my comfort zone. I don't like those people. I don't eat that kind of food, and I want to dress like that. So how does God get us to go? Well, he does it in a couple of ways. He, first of all, he fills us with the Spirit so that it's not us that goes, but it's us that goes in the power of God. But he pushes us out of our comfort zones. I was reading, and I, I don't usually refer to this particular site um, just because it's difficult to find documentation for things, but I, was, um, I typed in um, comfort zone in Google, and of course it takes you right away to Wikipedia. So I thought, well, there's an expert, Wikipedia. What does Wikipedia have to say about comfort zones? I actually liked what it said. Uh, It said, a comfort zone is a behavioral state within which a person operates in an an anxiety-neutral condition. Don't we love that? I just don't want any stress. I just don't want any worry. I don't want any anxiety. Just leave me alone. Don't push my buttons. That's a comfort zone. No anxiety, no stretching, no testing. And then it goes on and, and, and it says, using a limited set of behaviors, notice that, a limited set of behaviors to deliver a steady level of performance, usually without a sense of risk. That's a comfort zone. You know, we're not using all of our gifts. We're just using what we're comfortable using, things that I, you know, things that I've, you know, that I know how to talk well or I know how to sing well or I know how to do this in my little area and and I don't really want to risk anything. That's a comfort zone. So how does God push us out of our desire for anxiety-free living, for comfort, um, uh, for, for having comforts all around us? How does he do that? Well, I think he does it in a couple of ways. I think, one, he does it through sickness sometimes. It's amazing how many people I visit in the hospital that after they've been there for one, two, three days, they see, you know, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with my neighbor here. I had the opportunity to talk to this person about Jesus. I was talking with my nurse and the doctor and telling her about the church that I go to. These are people they would never normally talk to. They would never come across paths with. They would never have a conversation about Christ. But somehow in that hospital room, they have a boldness and they have an opportunity to share what they don't normally share. I think sometimes we we are pushed in our comfort zone simply by a deep love that God has given us for the lost. And some have experienced that this past week as they've gone out into our community with the gospel. It's not been easy for some of these people. It's not easy for me. And yet God is pushing us out and saying, you need to go to the ends of Parksville with the good news of the gospel. But one of the most prominent ways that God does this is through persecution. We haven't experienced a whole lot of persecution here in Canada. It may come one day, but at this point it's not come. But Luke tells us here that they were scattered in verse 19 because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. If we go back to Acts chapter 8, the picture fills out a little bit. As we read there that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Stephen wasn't killed because of any crime he committed. He was killed because he trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He was executed. And then he goes on and he says, And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
There's something about evil sometimes that when it's let least and nothing restrains it, it thinks that it can just take more and more and more steps. And so as Stephen was killed, people thought, well, this is good. Everyone likes this. Let's go get more Christians. And so a great persecution arose against the church. And they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That's interesting to me. Because if we're talking about comfort zones and anxiety-free living, most of those Jews that were scattered would have been quite happy to live in Jerusalem for the rest of their days. But because of the persecution, God pushed them out of Jerusalem into Judea. And many of them would have felt, okay, well, I can handle Judea, you know, it's still sort of my cousins and my, you know, people that are familiar with. There's a few synagogues here. But some of them were pushed into Samaria. Those dogs. And they had to live beside Samaritans. And all of a sudden, they had an opportunity now to share the gospel with the Samaritans. And that's exactly what took place. As they were scattered there, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, listen to this. Now those who were scattered hid their heads in the sand and didn't talk about Jesus anymore. Does that sound like the gospel? No, it says, Now those who were scattered went about and proclaimed to them Christ. They preached the word of the Lord. See, that is how God takes his gospel to the ends of the earth. He scattered us. He scatters us from those areas that we are familiar with, those areas that we are comfortable in, the opportunities that we have that don't produce any anxiety in us. And he pushes us out of those boundaries. And so that is what God is doing in this particular situation. He has pushed the people out of Jerusalem. They've made it now as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and now they're even in Antioch. And we say, well, how does God build his church then, humanly, in a place like Antioch? Well, he does it through gifted people like you and me. A number of weeks back, months back, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4. And there's a passage there which talks about what God does in his church. And he says he gave personally some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints and the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a, with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human coving, by cleverness in, de- in techniques of deceit. See what Paul is saying there? He's saying that Christ gives gifts of men and women to the church. He gives gifts of men, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to, do the, uh, to, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. God uses people to build his church. We see this in this illustration of Acts. You notice in verse 20 and 21 of Acts chapter 11, uh, he he says there that, that as these people went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, they went speaking the word. He was using unnamed evangelists to take the word of God to places where it had never been heard. And initially, the Jews just talked to other Jews. They felt comfortable And although they were out of their comfort zone of Jerusalem, at least they were speaking the word of God to Jews who maybe had never heard about Christ to this point. But then you read at the very next verse, verse 20. And, you know, I I can't say this any other way, but this is probably one of the best buts in the Bible. Because it talks about the fact that, but people went forth and they did something extraordinary. 
For the first time, on their own initiative, they took the gospel to the Greeks, to people who had never heard of the gospel. And it said, But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. You see it, loved ones? Here we have a truly amazing thing. The church has made the most epic steps of all time, and we do not even know the names of the people who took that step. All we know is they came from Cyprus and Cyrene. They go down in history as nameless pioneers of Christ. That's how many of you serve God. We don't know what you're doing. We don't know your name. But we know that you are serving God, and you, do go, you too go down as a nameless pioneer of Christ. But God builds his church through nameless evangelists who are full of the Holy Spirit and go forth with power and boldness and speak the word of God. And do you notice what results? Don't miss this. In, in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Loved ones, that is conversion. That's, that's what we talked a little bit about last week. That is repentance and faith. That is people hearing the gospel, hearing about Jesus Christ, hearing about their sinfulness, hearing about Him as their Savior, and saying, I need that. I need to have my sins forgiven. I want everlasting life. And it says, a great many believed and turned to the Lord. That's how God builds his church, through unnamed evangelists. But then we don't stop there and we see what happens is God sends then encouragers and exhorters. For example, Barnabas. The very next verse in verse 22, it says the report of this came to the ears of the church. I like the way it puts that. Came to the ears of the church. Uh, Just kind of radar screens that pick up anything. Do you hear that the gospel came to Antioch? I'll kind of come to Antioch. And it's like they had just kind of heard the the sweetest little tidbit. But I like the way the church responded. They didn't start to make assumptions. They didn't start to guess at what was taking place. But they thought, let's pick one of our own. And let's actually send them to find out what exactly is happening. And I don't think they could have picked a better man. They picked Barnabas. Barnabas. Barnabas was an encourager. We read in Acts chapter 4.36 a little bit about Barnabas. It says that he originally was called Joseph. But he was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite from Cyprus. You know, if there's anybody I want to meet, I want to meet Barnabas. I've got this picture of this man just full of grace, full of compassion, a softness about him. You know, we all need encouragers. We all need somebody that will come and speak kindly to us, speak gently to us. Most of us have enough of those in our life that speak the hard things to us and the harsh things to us. And it's not that we don't need to hear those things. It's just sometimes the way that they're delivered hurts so much. But oh, to have one or two Barnabases in the course of our life. Let's just come along and speak kindly. Speak gently. Speak encouragingly. He was a Levite from the line of priests. He would have been familiar with Scripture. 
He was from Cyprus. Get that. He was from Cyprus. The right man for the job. Why? Because Cyprus was a Gentile island. And so here was a Jew raised in this Gentile environment. He would have been familiar with the tensions. He would have been familiar with the, the mixture. He would have been familiar with the environment of Antioch. He was a generous man. He was one of these guys who, who when the call went forth in Jerusalem, when the church was immediately sort of filled with thousands of people and there's all kinds of needs and the call went forth, we need money. He went out and he sold an extra piece of land and he gave all the money to the apostles. And he says, use it however you see fit. He was generous. Barclay calls him the man with the biggest heart in the church. I like that. That's how I'd like to be known. The biggest heart in the church. Um, he was also a good man. I like that. He was a good man. What does a good man mean? I, I think, you know, it's talk of his character. It's, it's, it's talking about his attitudes. It's talking about his lifestyle. He's just a good guy. Most of us know a good man or a good woman. You know, you, 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 just, you, you just look at him, there goes a good person. I think that's what they saw when they saw Barnabas. He had been transformed by God in such a way that he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. I, I think we need to be careful not to read too much New Testament stuff back into what that means. I think at the very least level, it means that he had been filled with the Holy Spirit like it happened on, the, or on Pentecost. In other words, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, so he had evidence in his life of power and boldness, and he was witnessing for Christ. And so as people looked at him, he says, there's a man full of the Spirit. Look at him. He's not afraid to talk about Jesus. But I also think that maybe there was already the formation of the fruits of the Spirit, although they wouldn't have identified it as clearly in the days of Acts. But I like to think of him as a man who was filled with love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Full of the Spirit. And he was full of faith. I, I think for me that's an ambiguous statement. I think it could mean that he was full of personal faith. He was a man that was convinced that he was a child of God. He was a man that put his trust wholly in Jesus Christ for salvation. He was a man that knew that he couldn't earn salvation on his own. He could only do it by what Christ had done for him. So he was full of faith in Christ. But I like to think that maybe it's also full of the faith. That he was full of faith in the objective sense. That he knew the Word of God. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He had studied them. He had understood them. And so as he went in that context, he was able to declare the Word of God, the faith, with boldness. He went, this was the guy that they sent into Antioch to check out if life had come. And you notice what he says there? It says there, when, when he came in there, uh, when he came in verse 23, he saw the grace of God. What's the grace of God look like? I think many of us have experienced the grace of God. We feel the grace of God, but how do you see the grace of God? I immediately went to a couple of verses in my mind. One of them was in Titus where it talks there that the grace of God appeared. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. We see the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We see the grace of God fully in Jesus Christ, God tells us. And so we see the grace of God in, in, in the life of an individual that reflects God. And so when, when he came into this town of Antioch, all of a sudden he looked around him and he saw all these people but there was something different about their faces. There was something different about their speech. 
There's something different about the way that they dressed. There was something different about what they did at night. There was something about the way that they talk now. And he said, they've been, they've been hit by God. God has changed them. He saw the grace of God. And what did he do or what did he say? He encouraged the new believers. He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's wisdom. I don't know if many of you can go back to the early days when you became a Christian. Those are tough days. Those are days of battle. Because during those days, you have Satan who sits on your shoulder and just whispers in your ear, what a dumb thing you've just done. Do you really think Christ is going to accept you? Do you really think Christ loves you? Do you really think that this, is, this change is an eternal change? And he draws away and he whispers in your ear. But then you go home and you tell your family, I was just, I've been reading Pilgrim's Progress again. And if you only ever read one book in your life, you've got to read Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim, as he's being convicted and the weight of the sin, the burden is on his shoulder, he goes back to his wife and his kids and they think he's insane. They think he's lost his mind. That happens when you turn to Christ. Sometimes you go to work and you're asked to do something that the day before you would do, but now you're convicted that, no, this is not ethical. I can't do this. And you realize that there's a price that comes with following Christ. What do we need at that time? We need somebody to come along and say, keep going. Remain faithful. Hang in there. Call me any time of the day or night and I will pray with you. I will go for coffee with you. I will go for a walk with you. I will work with you for the next six months and help you know the reality of what has actually taken place. That's what Barnabas did. He encouraged these new believers. And you notice again the result then? The result was that a great many were added to the Lord. Beloved, that's discipleship. And, and somehow that was attractive. Somehow people saw, well, the change that's taken place in these people's lives, it's real. It's permanent. You know, my husband's not what he used to be. My wife's not what she used to be. My boss is not what he used to be. And all of a sudden people are saying, I want to find out more about this. And I want to find out about this Jesus. And so people were added and added and added to the church. So God builds his church through unnamed evangelists. God builds his church through um, encouragers and exhorters like Barnabas. But notice the next thing that the passage says here. Um, that that uh, in verse uh, 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I love this because what this sort of demonstrates to me is Barnabas knew the limitations of his gifts. He was not in this for himself. It wasn't all about him, this stuff of the church. And he thought it to himself as he was exhorting him, what does this church need? He says, well, they need doctrine. They need truth. They need to understand that there's going to come all kinds of assaults on what they believe. And they're going to need somebody that's going to ground them in the Word of God. That's going to ground them in the doctrines of Scripture. Because there's going to be all kinds of crazy doctrines. All kinds of crazy things happening. And they need to be able to stand firm. They need to not be tossed around by every wind and wave that comes their way. What's going to keep them from that doctrine? Who's best to teach them? Saul. I haven't seen Saul for eight or nine years, but he's the man for the job. We read of Barnabas' last meeting with Saul back in Acts chapter 9, 27. 
It says that Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. This was after, after Paul or Saul's um, amazing conversion. He explained to them on the road how Saul had seen the Lord and he had talked with him and how in Damascus, and listen to this, he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem. Here it is again, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. And then again, he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. He understood argument. He understood logic. He understood rationale. He didn't back down. He had boldness so much that they attempted to kill him. And when the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So that's where Saul had been for the last, the longest I could see was nine years. He'd been in Tarsus. Tarsus wasn't just across the river from Antioch. It was a hundred miles away. But Saul said, I need, or Barnabas said, I need to get that man. And it says that he went to Tarsus and he searched for Saul. That's the same word that is used to, to describe what um, Joseph and Mary did when they had realized that Jesus had been missing for three days. They went and searched him. It's like they didn't turn over, they didn't left no stone unturned. They had to find him. And they finally found him in the temple. Well, I think it just tells us that maybe Saul was getting persecuted again because of the gospel. Anyhow, he found him and he brought him back. And for a whole year, God now gave to this church Saul. And Saul taught them. And he discipled them. And it's fascinating at the end of it, the result in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Luke has, or Luke has used many ways to describe Christians. One, he says they're disciples. And I like that term. Disciples means a follower of Jesus or he's our master. And so I will sit at his feet. He also calls Christian saints. And I like that. Because, beloved, that's what we all are. If you are in Christ today, you are a saint. That means you are a set-apart one. You are holy unto God. And we are called to live out what we're called. And so part of our goal in life is to become what God always calls us, which is saints. He also calls the Christians brethren. And I like that. Brothers and sisters. We are family. We are family. Some of you were thinking that, weren't you? It's not just me that's weird. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ. I like that because that talks about the relational dynamic that exists then between us. We're also called believers, those who are being saved. And so we are believers. We're believing the gospel message. We're also, he also calls the Christians people of the way. I like that. We're on a journey to a destination. We're not there yet, but we're working towards it. And our destination is heaven. We're aliens and strangers here, but we're on the way to heaven. He calls them witnesses. We're filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might be witnesses. But now he calls them Christians. And it's not even Luke that calls them Christians. It's the people in Antioch who are looking at these bunch of people and saying, hmm, let's call them Christians. And actually, they're known for giving nicknames out the people of Antioch. So here they nicknamed them Christians. I don't necessarily think that's a bad term that they meant. They just were identifying them as followers of Christ. I like that. They looked at them and they said, they live a lot like the guy that they're talking about. Their lives are in line with the guy's teaching that they're talking about. They follow Jesus. They want to talk like Jesus. They want to act like Jesus. They want to live like Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. Let's call them Christians because he was called Christ. And so they were first called Christians. 
The last gift that we see given to Antioch, which helps build the church, is the gift of prophets. We read that in verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus, who stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine. You know, we don't have a lot of consensus about prophets, and just let me say a few words about this and then move to the conclusion. We don't have a lot of consensus about prophets or the prophetic ministry in our churches today. Personally, I believe that the office of prophet is closed. I believe the office of prophet was an office that was able to speak the word of God infallibly. We no longer have an open text. The word of God is closed. Therefore, I do not believe that there is anybody who speaks prophetically the word of God infallibly to us. However, I do believe that prophecy is still for the church today. I happen to believe that the gifts that are articulated in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are gifts not just for the apostolic era, but are gifts for the church today. And there are those who have the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy for me is is primarily a gift that is carried out through preaching or teaching. But there are people who have a, have a, a, a prophetic gift that they can use to build up the church. But I think we need to make a distinction that Prophecy is primarily foretelling, not foretelling. We have an example of foretelling here that a prophet came and foretold of a famine to come. I believe that the greatest use of the gift of prophecy, though, is not foretelling or predicting the future, but it's foretelling about something in the Word of God. I also think, frankly, that prophecy is primarily for the church and not for the individual. I'm somewhat troubled by traveling prophets who come to churches and they have personal consultations with individuals to speak prophetic words to them personally. I don't find that in Scripture. Prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is for the whole church when it gathers for its edification, its exhortation, and its encouragement. And so I'm troubled by the flocking of God's people to have personal prophetic words spoken over them. Anyhow, Luke tells us, that's, that's my little side bit for you this morning. Luke tells us that prophets came down, and it's through those prophets that God built his church. And a wonderful thing happens, and, and I just say this so quickly to them. You notice what happens. He predicts a prophecy. What do the believers do? They give according to their ability. And notice it, it says there that they gave according to their ability, and they sent relief to their brothers in Judea. You see how the family of God is growing? And they are now caring for one another. Here are the Gentiles taking the initiatives to care for the Jews. It's a beautiful way, illustration of how God builds his church. So, beloved, this is God's church. And Parksville needs the gospel. Oceanside needs the gospel. And may God move us out of our comfort zone and zones to take the good news of the gospel to our neighborhoods and to our care homes and to our hospitals and to our workplaces here. Realize that you have been given a unique gift. We need you. You need us. We need each other. If you don't know what your gift is, ask somebody around you that knows you and say, what do you think I'm good at? What do you think God has placed on my heart as an ability? And begin using it to build up the body of Christ. And then secondly, 
Just ask yourself, what's your responsibility? I think from this passage, clearly our responsibility is to be a Christian. To be a Christian. As you leave here, we sing that song, Take the Name of Jesus with You. One of the names of Jesus is Christ. So as people look at you this week, may they look at you and say, Wow, that person is just like Christ. Look at how they talk. Look at how they dress. Look at who they follow. Look at who's number one in their life. It's Christ. Take the name of Jesus with you.